Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. When it comes to kicking its addiction to foreign oil, America is like a guy hunched over a cocktail preaching temperance from a bar stool. We talk about the way the world ought to be and what other people should do. Yet every president since the last four decades has pledged to reduce America's dependence on foreign oil, but we're still hooked. Will that ever change? Can clean energy make a dent in the world's growing demand for energy? Electricity, transportation, fuels, etc. Can electric cars ever go mainstream? I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One, and for the next hour, we'll discuss powering America's economy into the future with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And we're delighted to welcome our guest, U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat from Oregon, who's a strong advocate of energy independence, renewable energy, and electric cars. Please welcome Senator Merkley to Climate One. Senator Merkley, thank you for coming down to be with us today. You're welcome. I'm pleased to have the invitation. Uh, so energy independence, lots of presidents talk about it. None has delivered about it. That's a big issue of yours. Is this time different? Can we ever get there? Well, I'll tell you, we, we need to get there. Uh, the, the conversation that can bring people together across the aisle is about ending our importation of foreign oil. And certainly that's because it has a national security element, uh, we pay an enormous amount to maintain the flow of oil from abroad, and, and the money goes into the hands of folks who don't necessarily share our values, our approach to the to the world. It has a huge impact on the jobs debate that is at the uh, the heart of the American conversation right now. We're spending a billion dollars a day on foreign oil. It's half of our trade deficit, which is a, a big issue. And that billion dollars a day spent here in America would create a lot more American jobs. So if you want to create wealth and jobs overseas, then then purchase foreign oil. If you want to create wealth and jobs in America, then replace that, that oil with American energy. And then, of course, there is the very important dimension of our impact on the environment. And so we have these three pieces that should bring the conversation together. We're not there yet, though. We should be. So it sounds good. Okay, we don't want to oil from the Middle East or, or from Nigeria, but that means more drilling at home. And then environmentalists get upset and don't drill off the coast, don't drill here. So are we willing to pay that price? I mean, is Oregon willing to pay that price? Well, I'd be the last person to advocate drilling off the coast of Oregon. 
And but let's look at what we have done. We have enormous number of, of leases in the Gulf tied up by the major oil companies. And if you convert those to use it or lose it leases, so other competitors are are in the mix, that would that would make a difference on on the drilling front. But the real answer isn't to pull more carbon out of the ground. The real answer is to proceed to have renewable energy that is not carbon-based. Or, if you're going to use carbon, use carbon that uh, utilizes biomass, which is pulling the carbon out of the air, not creating geological carbon out of the ground and adding to the, the, the air surface cycle, which is a, it's, it's a huge problem. And just to give a sense of this, we have exceeded the balance point for the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, roughly estimated as 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide. We are substantially over. We're at 390 and climbing. Before this uh, recession, we were climbing at uh, two parts per million per year. Ten years earlier, we were climbing at one part per million. So so, so not only are, do we have way too much carbon dioxide in the air, but the pace is, is growing quickly. This has all kinds of th- threats to the planet. So we should do everything possible in conservation, in solar energy, in potential wave energy, in, in wind energy, uh, to replace the, the carbon-based energy economy with a non-carbon-based. But those technologies are new. Uh, they are expensive. And right now, they can't compete with fossil fuels. So how would you propose leveling that playing field? Was it through a bunch of subsidies for these new energies? Well, actually, the, the, they, would, they can compete. And uh, let me put it this way. Uh, when you burn fuel in a car, it's extremely inefficient. It's far more efficient to burn it in a central power center and then distribute the electricity. And even with line losses, you, you have a much more efficient energy economy. So even, even if you were thinking you're going to create your electrical energy from carbon, you should still do it at a central place and distribute and fill your tank with electricity, not, not fill it with, with oil. Uh, furthermore, you can do a lot more in terms of pollution control in a, in a central mm-hmm. uh, se- setting. Uh, but we have seen solar energy come down uh, substantially. Uh, wind energy has come down substantially. So while... In some parts of the country, they're more expensive than uh, traditional uh, carbon-based electricity. They're getting, they're getting a lot closer. And in some places, they're, they're becoming quite competitive. So if the economics are there and there's this compelling concern of climate change, why isn't America moving faster? Well, uh, let me tell you that uh, when, when you look to policy, you can't just look at the policy itself. You have to look at, at the power behind different perspectives on the <clears throat> policy. And there's a huge, powerful interest in the oil and coal world that the last thing that they want is for us to move to non-carbon sources. And so their, their presence is uh, intense. They uh, fund lots of think tanks to come up with lots of arguments not to proceed to non-carbon-based. Uh, under Citizens United, they, they can put enormous amounts anonymously into campaigns across America. And let me just give you a sense of this. If Exxon spent 3% in 2008 of its net profits, it would have exceeded all the dollars spent on the last presidential campaign by all the various parties involved. One company, 3% of net profits. And under Citizens United, it can be done secretively, anonymously. And so uh, it's a very powerful interest. It's reason we need to have uh, discussions across this country 
about uh, where we're headed and why we need to change the, the, the course we're on, because ultimately it's, a, it's an informed citizenry that is going to create the pushback and allow us to change course. Have those interests come to you, say, with uh, offers or, or uh, uh, support or... Uh, we'll see. Um, there's a... Uh, I'll take that as a yes. Um, well, certainly I'd take that as a no. Uh, no, I, don't, I think those, those interests are not coming to me. They're coming to uh, folks they think they can persuade to push back against the courses I'm advocating for. One of your colleagues, Sheldon Whitehouse, gave a speech on the Senate recently where he said the dark hand of polluters is tapping on so many shoulders in in Washington, D.C., and he said nature, God's earth, is also tapping us on the shoulder. Uh, Does that fairly accurately describe sort of uh, the dark forces you're talking about? Well, uh, Sheldon put it uh, quite uh, poetically, Uh, but uh, I guess it's a way to, to say that there's a lot more money in established uh, carbon-based industries than there, there are in the renewable sector. Uh, I think it's our responsibility uh, when we're in public office to advocate for the things that will make the United States stronger, make this world better. And, uh, and then hopefully uh, when you run for re-election, you tell people what you've done and, 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 and you win. Uh, money makes a difference in politics, and so that's why we're having this, this, this conversation. Uh, it probably comes as no surprise to you that uh, I think it was a, a very tragic thing that Citizens United court case that allows these unlimited secret donations uh, was not uh, remedied by the Disclose Act. We had on the floor of the Senate 59 votes twice to get cloture so we could get to a final vote so that we could end the secrecy and, and do so and also end foreign donations under, under Citizens United. Uh, those two things... Uh, most folks felt would fit the constitutional framework the Supreme Court had laid out. We may look back 30 years from now and say that moment when we failed to get 60 votes to close debate on the Disclose Act in order to end secrecy and to end foreign donations uh, may be the moment that we went from uh, our vision, as President Lincoln laid out, of government of the people, by the people, for the people, to something that is much more akin to government uh, by the powerful for the powerful. At some point, though, if this gets so bad, is, it, is, there, is there a consequence to the fossil fuel interests sort of tying up Congress? Uh, there was a report, a uh, long article recently in the New York Times about how other countries are moving ahead. And while climate change seems to be sort of stuck in the mud in the United States, other countries are moving ahead with clean energy, implementing, uh, putting a price on carbon. Uh, you know, can the U.S. sort of just watch the rest of the world move ahead? Well, we, should, we shouldn't be because this is a, a huge growth sector. It's important to our economy. We'd much rather have the jobs here in America. Are we going to simply be a consumer of foreign products or are we going to uh, uh, sell our products to the world? Solar panels were invented here in, in America. Uh, why should we simply, as, as we, we work to create uh, this non-carbon uh, source of energy, why should we be buying the panels from uh, abroad? Now, one thing we have to contend with, which is another piece of the puzzle on the job side, is that this sector, the solar panel sector, has been targeted by China. And uh, they start with a pegged currency. There's a 25% subsidy to their products and a 25% tariff to ours. They throw in massive uh, subsidies in land, water, energy, and low-interest loans and grants. 
Uh, at least uh, $25 billion was uh, in the uh, U.S. Trade Representative's uh, uh, notification of Chinese subsidies that came out last week. So that actually is not allowed under the WTO. So unless we're going to hold China accountable to the framework of the WTO, then it will not be economically feasible to make those products in America. Uh, so uh, that, I just I throw that in as an, an important point, not related to a cleaner world, if you will, but certainly related to whether we're going to have uh, a good share of the, the jobs of renewable energy here in the United States. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One is U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat of Oregon. I'm Greg Dalton. Some people say, okay, yeah, China bends the rules. Maybe they're subsidizing solar, but we're not going to get back manufacturing jobs in the United States, whether it's for solar panels, toys, clothes, et cetera, that that train has really left the station. Are you saying we could get that manufacturing if China stopped bending the rules or cheating, that those jobs, solar panels, could actually be made competitively in the U.S.? You know, there are seven companies that filed the suit last week right. that are making solar panels here, and they're making them because they're, they're selling them. Uh, but the, the rapid price differential that's been driven by the Chinese products are, are hurting them. And those differentials are being driven by the subsidies in China. Uh, it's a very capital-intensive manufacturing process. And the machines cost essentially the same anywhere you, you buy them in, in the world. So, yes, we can compete on a level, level playing field. Electricity, solar electricity, uh, is a subject of a lot of debate, and sometimes uh, people think it should be, should be subsidized. Do you think that we should, uh, regardless of where the panels are made, that we should be subsidizing uh, solar electricity, clean energy, to make it more competitive with fossil fuels? We subsidize every form uh, of energy. And so uh, to the degree that we are doing that, well, why not subsidize the things that, that have the most favorable impact on, on us in, in terms of the, uh, the quality of our, of our air? Uh, so, uh, uh, yes. The problem is that once those subsidies get in, it's hard to, uh, to, get, the, to, to get them out. I mean, the fossil fuels have uh, subsidies that have been in place, and once they get there, it's hard to, to, uh, to pry them out, out of their hands. I believe that you supported uh, an end to some fossil fuel subsidies earlier this year. Is that still going to get some traction? Well, we had uh, a proposal to end five subsidies to the largest oil companies, uh, that subsidy costs, those set of subsidies cost $20 billion a year. That's a sizable sum. And those $20 billion aren't creating a single job because right now the oil companies are piling up cash. And so doesn't it make sense to take something that was argued for when the price of energy was so low that the, the oil and gas industry said, you know, we won't be able to do exploration for new sources unless we have some support to pay for that exploration. Well, that's an archaic argument today when prices are often over $100 a barrel for, for, for oil. And, and so when such a, a uh, subsidy has outlived its original purpose, then it should be viewed like any other expenditure program. If it's not the, the best use of the taxpayer dollars, then end it and put the dollars where they'll help more. What if that $20 billion, what if... Uh, a third of that went to the deficit, and a, a third of it went to uh, energy-saving retrofits, uh, creating jobs, uh, improving the efficiency of buildings. And what if uh, another third went to advancing non-carbon uh, research or production here in the United States? 
uh, all those would be a, a better use than the, the current uh, subsidies to the, the, the basically the richest corporations on the planet. So what happened to that? Did it die in the House? Did it get to the president? It did not get to the president. And uh, it uh, yeah, could possibly reemerge through the super committee that is now preparing a deficit-cutting strategy because, obviously, uh, it's a serious amount of, uh, amount of money. Even in Washington, $20 and, uh, billion means something. It's, yeah. it's, it's uh, substantial. And what the super committee should be doing is looking at each provision it discusses in the context of creating jobs. In other words, they were charged with a deficit-cutting strategy or responsibility. But you can cut deficits in a way that creates jobs or in ways that destroy jobs. And that matters a great deal because it's whether you drive the economy deeper into the ditch or you pull it, pull it out of the ditch. And so um, in that course of that, the committee also needs to be looking at all of the spending that is, is, is in the tax bills. It was 25 years ago, in 1986, that we had a major effort to go through the tax code and say, hey, we're spending money in all these different ways that don't make any sense. Let's eliminate these. It was led by uh, a Packwood, Senator Packwood uh, from Oregon, he's head of the Finance Committee. Mm-hmm. So that committee should be immersed in doing the same thing today that was done a quarter century ago. So for a quarter century, Congress has been handing out sweetheart deals. Maybe there was some argument for them at one point, but often there's no longer any argument, and that spending is every much the same real possibility to uh, to shift resources to something more productive as, as anything that's in an appropriation bill. There's really no difference. You spend $5,000 on a tax credit or you spend $5,000 on an appropriation bill, it's $5,000 often for the same purpose. So both sides need to be looked at with a view to job creation. And if in the course of it we can do some important things to advance a clean energy economy in the United States, that would be tremendous. Well, one of the biggest sweethearts in Washington is is uh, corn, corn ethanol. And uh, while we're on subsidies and sweethearts, uh, let's talk about. You believe I voted in support of ending was it six billion dollars in, in corn ethanol subsidies, uh, forty five cents a gallon subsidy to pr- produce corn ethanol. There's a fifty four cent gallon tariff if, if we'd like to import it from Brazil, which makes lots of the stuff. What's the status of that? Uh, I believe that that passed in the Senate. And I did support it. I supported ending these subsidies. It's now a much more mature industry. Uh, uh, in, the, in the past, I had a lot of concerns about the, the amount of energy that went into the process was virtually as much as you got out of the process. Um, some experts say that that's now improved with experience, that it's a little, little better balance than that. But the long and short of it is um, uh, it is, uh, has lots of impacts that are not that helpful, and it's an expensive item in the, in the budget. If, if we're looking at ways to uh, create ethanol, uh, and essentially from any form of uh, sugar, uh, one of the things we should be looking at is uh, cellulosic ethanol. Uh, we have uh, in Oregon uh, forests that produce a whole lot of biomass. And I visited a project just a couple days ago, a company called Zchem, that is doing a pilot plant, and it's one of just two or three around the country, and they're, they're hoping to do a commercial plant starting in, in two years that's taking the, the wood from poplar trees and converting them into ethanol. Well, that's a place where it's in the early phase of research and development where it makes sense to encourage that exploration because it could open up, if the, uh, if the technology is refined and successful, it could open up a huge new source that doesn't have uh, an impact on food. 
supplies. And you can have uh, uh, your, your, your leftover grass from the, the fields or corn stove or a whole series of sources of cellulose. And that's an appropriate place to be doing uh, research. There's lots of ideas of waste to energy. Uh, uh, one of the concerns about all these new types of fuels is that they can never get big enough fast enough. That petroleum has a 100-year history, immense scale, and there's lots of bathtub experiments, whether it's switchgrass or these sorts of things. And so how can government help scale these things, say that poplar trees are, are the answer? And, and there's been lots of answers, whether it's, uh, you know, there's a, things come along and then they're sort of, oh, this is great, and then often there's some kind of downside to it. But getting to scale is a big problem. So we have a tax credit for advanced biofuels. Uh, it's making this uh, this pilot plant in Oregon possible. I think it equates to uh, about a dollar per, per gallon of uh, cellulosic ethanol. And uh, that's set to expire in 2012. Uh, in most places around the country, that is, is uh, we often set these so that they'll expire for, for budgetary forecast reasons. But it, to it's, make the deficit look smaller. To make the deficit look smaller, artificially. Smoke and mirrors. It's an accounting game. And um, I think at least a four- to five-year extension is merited. And we shouldn't do it one year at a time because industry doesn't plan projects based on support that comes one year at a time, and too many of our energy credits that, that are key strategic uh, directions for the United States, we've reviewed, we've, we've renewed on an annual basis, which doesn't have the impact if you could act, if industry could actually plan on them being there for a few years. But you're suggesting that people are going to be kind of straight up and make the budget look deficit look bigger. Stop the games about about the numbers. Is that there, right? Yes, and that's, I tell you, there are huge games like this. One of them is the reimbursement rate on, on Medicare. Uh, pretty much everyone in the Senate and the House understands that if there's a 25% reduction in reimbursement rates, people on Medicare aren't going to get in the doors, and seniors would riot across this country if they couldn't get in the door of their doctor. Because doctors would be too low, doctors would stop seeing those that's patients? That's right, that's right. They have the, with uh, the aging of baby boomers, and, and uh, there's fewer and fewer doctors because there's so many are retiring. Uh, they're, they're, in a, they're in a great place to see the patients uh, who can provide higher levels of, of reimbursement through uh, other forms of insurance. And so... We had a bill to extend that for eight years, and we couldn't get through the motion to proceed to get it to the floor to, to debate. And uh, it's so here we are, back to a year-by-year extension, which also points up some other procedural problems in the Senate that need to be addressed. So is the Super Committee going to solve all this? Well, the Super Committee has a, a month left, and uh, they all are, are being very quiet about what they're, they're doing. Uh, the second and third sources to them uh, report that there's uh, uh, not much movement in terms of uh, folks coming together. But um, they're still raking in the campaign donations. Oh, well, I, I hadn't seen that report, but uh, they're certainly in a key position right now, and uh, we'll, we'll see. I think uh, most most folks on Capitol Hill are, are fairly skeptical. Uh, I voted against the deal that created the super committee. And I voted against it because I, I had my team shuttling back and forth to the Congressional Budget Office and the Budget Committee the night it was considered. And uh, we were trying to put together the real impact of the mandatory reductions. And the if way they don't create a deal, there's some that's mandatory right. half a that's right. half five hundred billion in defense or some big axes that fall. Right. It's mm-hmm. very and it's all falling basically on working Americans. 
And uh, I think that uh, that's, that's, not a, that's not a fair deal. In fact, for the last three decades, essentially working people's wages have been flat. In the last decade, they've dropped by 7% in real, in real terms. And so uh, I think the, the automatic cuts that are going to take place are very poorly distributed and further complicate the uh, distribution of income and wealth issues that have uh, dramatically expanded over the last, uh, last few years. That's one of the main grievances of the Occupy uh, movement, whatever, whatever you call it. Have, have they come to Oregon? Yes, yes, in, indeed. I think virtually every state in the, the country, uh, Occupy Portland, is alive uh, and well. And it, the, uh, the general heart of the conversation is uh, the frustration of ordinary people about the direction we're headed. If you take and overlay a chart of productivity of workers and real wages, those charts lay right on top of each other between 1945 and 1975 for three decades. From 1975 till now, so we're talking another 35 years, the real wages are absolutely flat while productivity has soared. The wealth of the country has expanded enormously, but the real income of, of working families has been flat and over the last decade declining. So people are looking at the fact that the, their wages won't pay for their children to go to college. We're becoming the first generation, I know we're going far from energy here, but the first generation of adults whose children are getting less education than we got. And the main reason is the cost of college compared to working wages has gone up phenomenally. And so something's deeply amiss, and I think that's the frustration we're hearing. And that's the Occupy sentiment. So what's your view? Do you support the, the, their demands, the, the, the process, the Occupy? Well, I, I think you know that the Occupy movement has no real leadership. Very, very amorphous, <laughs> yes. And doesn't have a set of, uh, of demands. Uh, so I can only speak to the frustration that folks are expressing over the path we've been on. Are and they being I, heard in Washington? And I, well, I, I, I think they're being heard everywhere. And uh, the, they, but the message is a bit muddled since there isn't a clear mm-hmm. list of what they're aiming for. But I think what's most important is for us to understand this frustration comes from a structure of our economy in which we have lost 50,000 factories in the last 10 years. We've lost 5 million living wage manufacturing jobs in the last 10 years. And that if we don't make things in America, we don't have a middle class in America. And so the middle class not only has been flat in terms of their real income since uh, 1975, uh, but they're, they're looking at a future in which they're not sure how they're going to, to make it now. And that, that frustration is going to reverberate uh, politically, and, and we should pay attention. And one of the, the bright spots, people talk about green jobs, that, that those are jobs that can't be exported, retrofitting, et cetera. Uh, but sometimes green jobs get, get overhyped. I mean, how much of a growth engine can green jobs really be? Well, the analysis in, in my state of Oregon is that the growth in green jobs has exceeded every other sector by an enormous amount. The combination of solar, geothermal, wind, we also have a big project going to deploy an experimental wave buoy. It's grown faster than any other sector. From very low base, though, right? I mean, from a, from a modest, from a modest base. Although Oregon has been a leader in, in green energy, renewable energy, uh, for, for, mm-hmm. for decades. Uh, the, uh, so it certainly is an area not to ignore. And when you look at the potential, when you look at the potential of every rooftop possibly having a, a, a solar array of distributed uh, energy production, and we've deployed massive amounts of, of wind turbines in the last uh, 10 years in, in Oregon, as so many other states have as well. And the potential is, is very high in some states, states 
such as uh, North Dakota, if you will, mm-hmm. other other uh, Saudi Arabia of wind, yeah. You know, in fact, it's uh, it's interesting to the Senate to listen to senators, and you'll hear Senator Dorgan would say North Dakota, it's the Saudi Arabia of wind power, and then you'd hear uh, Senator uh, Harry Reid say Nevada, it's uh, the Saudi Arabia of uh, solar power. And uh, there are uh, folks in my state who point to our, our the growth of our forests and say that, hey, Oregon, Saudi Arabia of cellulosic ethanol. And uh, with all these Saudi Arabias, how come we're still importing oil from Saudi Arabia? Good question. Um, the uh, One of the questions about green jobs, though, there was some uh, report recently in Newsweek that said some of the uh, green jobs and retraining didn't happen as expected, and there were some critiques of uh, the stimulus plan from 2009, which pushed lots of money to states to weatherize houses, and some of the work wasn't done up to code. Uh, was that just because the government was in a rush to push money out and, and create jobs and maybe got a little sloppy? Well, so the, uh, the study found that 14% of the homes, the work had not been done to code. Uh, I'm looking for the details to find out who they surveyed where. Is it, is it certain states that had that problem? Because since this was done through the states, you would assume that there were 50 different processes uh, yeah. for implementing this. Some states probably did it very well, and, and some uh, didn't provide the oversight that, that was needed. And we need to learn from that because the fundamental principle of low-cost loans for energy-saving retrofits is absolutely sound. That is that compared to any other form of energy we're talking about, saving energy by investing in a home or in a commercial building and uh, managing the energy effectively there, the savings on the energy bill will often, so on the utility bill, will often pay for the, the costs of the retrofits themselves. Within a couple of years, very quickly. With, in, over a sh- modest period of time. Mm-hmm. And so that is why economists who have looked at the best bang for the buck in terms of creating jobs, and not just within the energy sector, any sector, have found that energy retrofits are the top strategy, the top job-creating strategy. And part of that is the labor cannot be outsourced anywhere else. It has to happen here in America. And virtually all the products that are used in energy-saving retrofits, double-pinged or triple-pinged windows, uh, uh, the pink cotton candy insulation, uh, the caulk, uh, the insulated doors. It's virtually all made here in, in America. And so you have very little loss for the investment in terms of the impact on creating jobs. And how successful was the uh, Recovery Act, the stimulus plan overall in creating jobs, and particularly green jobs? That's one of the real high points for some green enthusiasts is that, that Recovery Act uh, funding. Well, there's all kinds of mixed reports. Uh, the big framework for the Recovery Act is that you had a basically a more than a $3 trillion drop in consumer spending. And into that, we placed about an $800 billion Recovery Act bill, so a, a quarter. Now, that couldn't possibly counter the whole drop in consumer spending, but the goal was to keep from sliding into a major depression. Well, we're still in a pretty rough recession, and some say that the Recovery Act should have been done more. But we have to start from the understanding it only replaced a fraction of the money that that consumers stopped spending because of the meltdown. Would you have liked to see a bigger stimulus plan? Well, I probably would have targeted it somewhat differently. I, I will tell you I've advocated fiercely that a lot of the money we spent on Wall Street should have been directed to helping homeowners because it's housing that brought us into this mess. Uh, 
It was the deregulation of the humble, fully amortizing home mortgage, allowing to have two-year teaser rates and then exploding interest rates and then the securities based on that. Now, why did institutions buy these securities when they knew that they had subprime loans in them with exploding interest rates and people not be able to pay them? Well, one reason is they were able to acquire insurance very cheaply. Well, where did that insurance come from? Well, this overnight $50 trillion business that's referred to as derivatives, but essentially it's insurance for securities. It pays off if the security fails. So whether you were a, a pension board or an investment house, very sophisticated banking, banks, for example, bought these as well. And, of course, that insurance wasn't regulated. And AGI couldn't stand behind the product it was, was, was selling. So my point here is that abuse of the home mortgage and deregulation of common sense rules for, for how you made those mortgages set us up for an enormous housing bustle, bubble, an enormous meltdown, and that left homeowners hanging across this country. And so helping those homeowners uh, is critical to us going forward. My home state, and virtually every state has some story like this, but we sell lumber. You don't sell lumber without housing being built. We sell grass seed. We have a nursery stock, big business. And um, so not only is it the impact right in your own state that, that, that the construction industry is down, it reverberates in terms of the, the products. Uh, and uh, we should be as passionate uh, and determined to help homeowners as we were to help major financial institutions. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon. I'm Greg Dalton. How would you grade President Obama on energy and environment so far? Well, certainly the, the president uh, has brought the right philosophy to bear. That is that there is an important reason to pursue energy, green energy, renewable energy, that it's important for creating jobs, it's important for our national security, uh, it's certainly important for the environment. Uh, the, uh, so uh, I give him uh, uh, an A for uh, vision. I think that uh, we stumbled along the, the uh, first two years in terms of actually getting a plan implemented. Uh, one of the things that I'm immersed in uh, is uh, taking on uh, the issue of electric vehicles. You mentioned it earlier. I'm doing it with Lamar Alexander. So here is a bipartisan movement. The senator from, from yes, Tennessee. Yeah. Yes, from Republican. Tennessee. Part of the Republican uh, leadership, he's stepping down in, in January. But here is a sector where, where there maybe, with a little more push those first two years, we could have actually gotten legislation done. We're still working on it. We introduced our bill last year and got it out of committee, but not to the floor. And uh, this year we're having a little more trouble getting it out of, out of committee as the presidential politics uh, heats up. But... Uh, my point is Plan A failed, and we didn't get Plan B passed, uh, and Plan B could have made a substantial impact in, in areas such as uh, electric vehicles. Uh, Eric Pooley is an author of a book called The Climate War. He's at Bloomberg Business Week, and he says that there was a window of opportunity in 2009 when there was a bill in the Senate. The House passed a, a comprehensive climate legislation. It went to the Senate. Uh, War War Senator Warner, Senator Lieberman had a bill there, and if the president had really rolled up his arms, he could have got a deal, but he didn't exert enough leadership or political capital to get well, it done. Is that is that fair? Well, 
It, it is a rear-view mirror analysis, which is, uh, of course... Uh, fun. Fun. And uh, you remember the context of uh, that it was the health care bill that was tying up the entire Senate, and most folks said we need to clear this issue before we can move on to, to energy. Uh, so uh, I, I guess, I, I guess uh, in a perfect world, there was a possibility there, but could you really have done a major piece on energy in the middle of that health care debate? I'm not sure, you, I'm not sure that, that that would have been possible. I do think, though, that there were a number of modest steps that could have been packaged in 2010, the following year, after the health care was done, that we might have gotten through if we'd been willing to, to shift from the, the, the macro plan uh, to a, a, a compilation of more modest measures. You mentioned the protests earlier. There was a, a protest here in San Francisco recently. Uh, some Democratic, uh, the president was here. Uh, there was some Democratic uh, fundraisers happening, and there were some actual pretty big Democratic donors on the streets outside protesting. In this particular case, it was protesting against the Keystone XL pipeline, which the president can approve or stop without asking Congress. So they're looking for his leadership on that. What's your position on Keystone XL? Well, I wrote to uh, Secretary Clinton to express concerns when she first said that uh, she it was her intent to uh, pursue it. And I felt that that uh, we should absolutely be investing in infrastructure in this country uh, because infrastructure creates jobs and because it builds the foundation for a future economy. But that we, we should, should clarify, this is an oil pipeline from the tar sands of Canada to Texas yes. for, for crude oil from the tar sands. Yes. Okay. And so, um, but why not build infrastructure that is healthy in the long term? And the reason folks are very concerned about this pipeline is that the tar sands take a lot of energy to extract the oil, and they produce a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide in the, in the process. So if we are arguing that we need to have an energy future that reduces carbon dioxide in the air, this is, in, this is incompatible with that. But the AFL-CIO has endorsed it. It's a $7 billion pipeline uh, pro- construction project in a recession. A tough thing to resist. Well, and this is why we should be uh, saying, well, let's invest in infrastructure that's healthy for our nation. Because if the choice is nothing or a pipeline, then certainly the choice is going to be let's create those, those, those jobs. But I was very struck recently uh, by uh, returning to, uh, to China this past year with uh, Senator Reid's uh, bipartisan group. And it had been 14 years since I'd been there. And if you look at that country, you go, wow, look how much infrastructure has been built in a decade and a half. Amazing. Just phenomenal. I remember flying into Beijing and not even really seeing major connector roads leaving the city. And there were two or three ring roads. Uh, the roads were filled with, with bicycles. Now, 14 years later, they're adding 2,000 cars a day. I think they're on their seventh ring road. Uh, major highways have been built across the country. I rode a bullet train at 200 miles per hour from Beijing to Tianjin. Uh, I saw mass transit uh, trains underway at, at uh, major cities in the West that most of us have never heard of. And the reason why all this is happening is China is spending 10% of their gross domestic product on infrastructure. Europe is spending 5%. We're spending 2%. 
Well, 2% is barely enough and sometimes not even enough to repair the bridges and roads that, that and rails that we have. Uh, so if I could summarize the challenge for America, it would be this. We need to spend a lot less on foreign bases and a lot less on foreign wars and a lot more on education and infrastructure. Our guest today here is Jeff Merkley, Senator, U.S. Senator from Oregon. Um, we're going to bring our audience uh, microphone up here and uh, invite you to, uh, if you could please come around on this side, we'll form the line at that back door. If you're on this side of the, uh, the audience, we invite you to go out through that door so we um, can form the line uh, back at those doors. Senator Merkley, uh, we touched on electric vehicles earlier. Uh, you have an idea about how electric vehicles can be promoted in cities around the United States. How would you do that? Yes. Uh, the, the bill that uh, Lamar Alexander and I have pursued uh, creates a series of deployment communities around the country. And the requirement uh, for these communities would, that would apply for the grant is for them uh, is for the grants to go to very different types of settings so that we would then gain information on different strategies that, that cities want to pursue. Some might decide to pursue major arterials supporting charging infrastructure. They might move that charge. Others might move that charging infrastructure primarily to retail centers. Others might really emphasize the home or the workplace. And we would discover in different areas by monitoring uh, what happens uh, really how to make this work. Uh, the, uh, we don't have a huge infrastructure yet. We have a very tiny infrastructure for recharging electric vehicles. How can we take and build the infrastructure in the most positive way possible, the biggest impact on, on that enables people to utilize uh, plug-in hybrids or fully electric vehicles? So that is the heart of it. Also, the bill then says we should encourage uh, government fleet purchases and private fleet purchases and we should continue research on longer-range batteries. So those are the main elements. And so this is not a mandate saying what auto companies got to do this or do that. This is sort of dangling money saying, come and get it if you can do some things, and it's cash awards to cities and communities, right? It's, uh, well, uh, cash awards. It is grants that will enable them to pursue different deployment charging infrastructure. So it's, 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 it's an opt-in, it's a carrot, not a stick. Yes, and you see a piece of this. Uh, Oregon, my home state, I just visited a couple days ago a, uh, a charging station that is the very first uh, high-voltage, short-time period charging station. It's going in under Fred Myers. So here in front of the Fred Myers is this uh, array uh, with two hoses. It actually looks like a gas pump, <laughs> and you realize it's going to be pumping electrons into the car. But in the time that you can come to the store and go inside uh, to buy a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk and come back out 20 minutes later, your, char- your car is charged up. And so that's it's, it's one ex- example. There's debates going on on whether there should be charging stations on, on, if you will, every exit on our interstate system. And, and again, whether it makes more sense to, uh, is, the, is the key thing to have it at parking lots where people are, are uh, commuting and putting their car work. If you have a 40 to 50 mile range on a car and you can recharge at work, well, now you can live 40, 50 miles away. That covers most of the 90% of the commutes in America uh, that would right. be, be possible. Right. So these, these are the, 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 the sense of it. Our guest today at Climate One is U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our first audience question, please. Good afternoon, Senator. 
Thank you for your support of the renewable energy industry. Um, you said earlier that solar costs are coming down in the U.S. and that, you know, we're challenged to meet grid parity, but that we're getting there, which I think is the case. Um, you also have been supportive in the press of the Solar World petition. Have you considered the job impacts and likely job losses that will come to the dozens of solar installation companies in your state of Oregon and the thousands across the country who are basically have, have small margins right now? And if we impose tariffs on the panels coming in, that their margins will go down and, and many of those companies may go under. Well, uh, thank you for that question. And it speaks to the reverberations as we wrestle with the situation where a foreign company is, is subsidizing a, a product, and actually illegally subsidizing a, a, a foreign product. And therefore, there is one silver lining, which you're pointing to, which is the it costs less to consumers here. Uh, but uh, certainly... Uh, what we will find over the long term is if American manufacturers are wiped out uh, by this strategy, then prices are going to go up uh, because there will be one country controlling the, the international uh, uh, solar market. So competition on a level playing field in the long term is actually the best strategy for fair pricing, competitive pricing that will drive down prices uh, uh, for consumers. So the, there, you, you're, I think you're right that there could be a short-term shock, but in the, in the long term, uh, having a competitive marketplace is going to be most beneficial because that competition will drive down the prices and maximize the innovation in production. Let's have our next question for Senator Merkley. Good afternoon. Thank you for being a clean energy champion. I wanted to um, get your opinion on um, a climate policy at the federal level. California last week just approved a cap-and-trade program, and what we're trying to do is show how California can be a, um, a leader in job growth and just, like, the value of putting a price on carbon. And I wanted to get your thoughts on whether you think that that's going to be possible at the federal level at some point. Based on, I know votes are really important. If you can get the votes behind it, but well, what happened at the federal level is fascinating, because uh, if you roll the clock back a ways, you had a Republican plan to reduce sulfur dioxide by using market forces, and rather than put a, a restriction on each smokestack on sulfur dioxide and thereby reduce uh, uh, acid rain, you had um, someone say, "Hey, let's do it at least cost by allowing people to trade." back and forth so that the places where it's cheapest to reduce sulfur dioxide will be the places where we'll actually reduce it. And I must say I, I remember being very skeptical of, about this and, and thinking it would be hard to create a, a structure that, that would have integrity. But it worked incredibly well. It, it produced more reductions in sulfur dioxide faster at a cheaper price than even the most wildly optimistic estimates before the experiment. So now we come to the last two years, and folks said, well, this Republican strategy worked so well using market forces. Isn't that the smart thing for us to do on carbon dioxide? And uh, you would think that since this had come from one side of the aisle and had been wildly successful, that side of the aisle would say, wow, let's take credit for what we invented, and let's apply it, and let's reduce carbon dioxide at the most effective, efficient way, and it'll be reduced faster and more cheaply than we can estimate now. But what happened was groups that have a deep interest in selling oil and coal worked to create think tank commentaries and talking points and persuaded the Republican world to, in, instead uh, of talking about the market forces, talk about a job-killing energy tax. 
And so the policy was completely lost. I think that it, deep damage was done. I think we're going to have to look at the individual sectors, and that's freight. How do we move freight onto rail and barges? How do we move freight on trucks more efficiently, efficiently using tire inflation, airfoils, uh, perhaps using lower carbon strategies such as natural gas versus, versus uh, diesel oil? Uh, how do we change the structure on uh, the personal automobile, which is what we've been talking about in terms of electric vehicles and, and plug-in hybrids? I think we're going to have to take it on a piece-by-piece -piece basis. But we've got to keep coming back to the core point that this is not just good for the atmosphere. This is good for creating jobs by moving our energy dollars here at home. And it's good for our national security not to be uh, dependent upon the Middle East. So a comprehensive approach is just a non-starter right now. A, a, an omnibus approach, energy, climate approach, ain't going to happen. I think that's correct. Next question, please. Good afternoon. I'm Dale Miller, president of the Golden Gate Electric Vehicle Association. Senator, do you or any members of your staff drive an electric car now? Uh, I do not. I do not drive an electric car, but I have uh, publicly said that uh, we expect next year to have three cars available in Oregon. Uh, that's the uh, LEAF. Uh, the uh, Mitsubishi has just come forward, and actually the, the Ford Focus and the Chevy Volt. Uh, but we only have one right now. But uh, I'm going to be buying an electric car uh, within this next, uh, um, uh, well, within a, within a year after we get these uh, three vendors uh, in, in Oregon to compete with each other. Have you driven one yet? Yes, I've, I've driven a, a number of them. And uh, For fun, I must huh? say the most exciting one to drive was the one produced here in, in California, the, uh, the Tesla. You went, you went to the factory, and yeah, that's as yes. people. Yeah. Yes, yes. Next audience question, please, for Senator Merkley. I want a Tesla, too. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, you've touched on a lot of complex issues, which um, one of which was um, some of the, your solutions just dying in the in the uh, house, um, and with uh, obstructionists and the other. Other party within the Democratic Party as well. Um, I feel that uh, it's, it's it's just it's just too bleak. I mean, it's just it's just too much that needs to happen and too little time. So, so your question, question is how, how come the total process? Uh, uh, and I've I've heard uh, your your colleague um, Senator Bernie, San Bernie Sanders speak about this before about the uh, the filibuster and certain certain rules which would allow executive power to, um, as, as things are, without any sort of constitutional amendments, um, so let's have to, Senator Merkley. to toss that out so that you, you guys can get some things done. Uh, you bet. Would you please uh, look into that? Well, I'll not only look into it. Uh, let me tell you what happened in January. Uh, Tom Udall and I led an effort to change the rules of, of the Senate. And uh, Tom focused on the constitutional option, that is, that by a simple majority you can change the rules at the start of a two-year period. I focused on putting a, a group of five reforms together and rallying support for them. The two most important were a protocol for amendments so that the minority and the majority have fair chance to amend a bill on the floor of the Senate and to replace the current Obstruction, which is referred to as the filibuster, but a more accurate term would be to call it the silent objection filibuster, because it doesn't actually require you to talk on the floor of the Senate. Never, never has. It's just that when there was a complete social consensus 
that majority was the correct way to go. When people objected to simple majority, they stood on the floor and talked about it because they wanted to take responsibility and they wanted to defend what they were doing. So, um, so what the talking filibuster would do is say, is rather than simply quietly objecting, which takes five seconds, and then you can go off on vacation or off to fancy dinner or something, instead, if you want to block a simple majority, there has to you or someone else has to be on the floor speaking to the issue at hand. That's think, the talking filibuster. Do you think that, that that would be effective, that there's time for that? That would have an incredible impact because the difference between saying, you know, I'm just going to make it hard for the majority to get anything done and there's no cost to me, or the fact that I might have to talk through the night or line up uh, some, some colleagues to talk through a week, uh, perhaps a month, uh, these things, then, you're accountable to the American public. Let me go back to this issue that I was talking about in terms of the Disclose Act, which would have ended secret foreign donations. Well, we had 59 votes. We needed a 60th. If the folks who wanted to block that 60th vote had had to stand up before the American people and go through several nights or a week or a month defending secret foreign unlimited donations... Absolutely, the American people would have had a chance to respond and say, that's outrageous. That's un-American to allow foreign companies to spend unlimited sums secretly here in the United States. And so the talking filibuster makes you accountable, and you can be either considered a hero or a bum. And it's within the context, then, of that feedback that that you can change the, the, the paralysis. Uh, now, would it be better to get rid of the, the filibuster completely? For example, uh, Senator Harkin proposed that you go from 60 votes required, and then after a time period you go to 58, and after another time period you go to 56, and you discuss. Uh, that could work as well, honoring everybody's chance to have their say. But I think it's much less likely in the politics of the Senate to be able to get that done than to implement the talking, talking filibuster. Our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, I wanted to ask, um, given the relative failure of the United States to pass any kind of climate cap and trade or anything in our own country, what do you think we should uh, bring forward to the table in South Africa for the negotiations? What should our approach be? International climate negotiations in South Africa later this year. Uh, It's a terrific uh, question. Because the hope had been that substantial progress by America would lead to a a framework that we could advocate for internationally. I think we're somewhat at sea at at this point in terms of what international role we can take. I do want to point out that the administration proceeded to, by by administrative rule, uh, do a terrific piece of work in terms of the, the, the gas efficiency of vehicles by requiring for the years, I think, 2017 through 2030, a 5% per year improvement. That has largely gone unnoticed and undiscussed. In my uh, think tank piece that I did on how to end our dependence on foreign oil over a 20-year period, I had a 6% per year uh, in there. Uh, so 5% per year, that's, that's pretty pretty solid and managed to bring a lot of parties together. That doesn't necessarily set the stage for an international set of responsibilities. But what we're talking about in terms of international conversation is about the global commons. 
So here, here we have this air, this very thin layer that wraps this beautiful blue-green planet. And changing the chemistry of it depends on what every country around the world puts into it. And so how are we going to work together to address a set of rules that will protect this commons, this, this atmosphere that we all share? And that is, um, that is so important because there is no way, no matter how good of legislation we do here in the U.S. by ourselves, that we are going to change the general dyna global dynamic. But the hope is, by being engaged at the U.S., we gain credibility and have more ability to work with countries around the world and not have everyone saying, you first, you first. Developing countries saying, you first, industrialized world, because you've already benefited from burning a lot of carbon. Now we want to burn a lot of carbon. And for us to say, you first, you poor countries, because uh, you're doing more coal. We're already doing a lot of hydro and renewable, so you get, you get rid of your coal first, and then let's talk. We've got to get out of the you first and get into the uh, us together have to take on this problem. Let's have our next audience question for Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you, Senator Merkley, for joining us today. Um, appreciate your comments earlier on the uh, cap-and-trade system. wanted to get your thoughts on perhaps a simpler approach. Um, would you support an end to all energy subsidies and taxes if they were replaced with a simple carbon tax that would reflect the true cost of fossil fuels? A simple carbon tax uh, has a lot of merit. Uh, the, um, of course, we have a big portion of one in terms of the, the gas tax, but it doesn't cover the other forms of, of carbon. I think after you saw the, the, the backflips and the somersaults and all the complexities that went into the negotiations over trying to replicate the uh, uh, sulfur dioxide structure for carbon dioxide, you, you get some sense that a much simpler approach uh, merits uh, being on the, on the table for consideration. So the challenge is to do it in a fashion in which you don't get into multitudinous exceptions and adjustments of every conceivable kind that start to gut the integrity. I mean, the, the heart of a carbon tax is, is the simplicity and straightforwardness of it and the fairness of it. So I hope that, uh, I think it should be part of, of the discussion. I think it has a, a lot of potential merit. Of course, the, your concern sounds like that any, once it got through Congress, it wouldn't be so simple anymore. <laughs> that is my concern. I thought I'd get that right out, out, <laughs> out front there. Because if you take something and then you do 50 exceptions, uh, you end up with it so Swiss cheese that nobody feels that it, it has, uh, may not have any effectiveness and it may not have any fairness. And if you get rid of effectiveness and fairness, you have, you have little left. And other countries are doing that, Australia, uh, Canada. Let's have our next audience question. Senator, you talked about the potential for a Saudi Arabia of wind, a Saudi Arabia of solar, uh, a cellulosic Saudi Arabia. Uh, even if these things were built, the power generated needs to be distributed. So that would require a grid that could accept and distribute the energy. When you talk to people about this, they mentioned the the thicket of regulations, local interests, local energy companies, it seems to me that is something that the, you could address very well at the federal level. I wonder if you could discuss that. Yes, grid is essential. We have uh, counties in Oregon that would like to pursue uh, wind projects that can't because there isn't the distribution uh, system in place to, uh, to, uh, to move that electricity. Uh, we have a situation in Oregon where we have high wind periods 
and high flow in the rivers, and we have a lot of hydroelectricity coming off the Columbia River, and at those points, we have electricity that can't be shipped anywhere because there's not enough uh, uh, high-voltage lines connecting us to other regions around the, the, the country. It, there is a lot of cost that goes into building a stronger uh, grid for distributing electricity, uh, but it is an essential component of, of changing. Now, there's other things we can do within the, the world of renewable energy, such as rooftop solar, that don't require that, that grid. But other components do, and it, sh- it has to be part of the, uh, of the strategy. And here in California, Governor Brown's plan is somewhere in between rooftop solar and, and big industrial plants in the desert, and that is on highways and, and uh, big commercial centers. And so it's a bigger scale that still doesn't require a lot of the distribution uh, infrastructure, but it's, it has more muscle than, than your, you know, your house and mine. Sort of thing. Yes, and if you want to see the, the largest solar highway uh, in the United States, uh, it's just outside of uh, Portland. And so we were we were proud to have that. I know California might build a bigger one, but not yet they haven't. Uh, so, uh, uh, but it, it shows you that the right of way that exists along highways has right. huge potential in this discussion. Land that doesn't have endangered species, it's already disturbed, it's already there. Absolutely. Let's have our next audience question. So one of the criticisms or common descriptions of the Occupy Wall Street movement has been that it's amorphous, that it lacks demands. Um, it seems to me that the resounding cries for re- reform of the financial system and um, addressing I- inequality in general, which are big issues, of course, but do you think it's the responsibility of the Occupy Wall Street protesters to develop clear demands, and do you think this would be effective ultimately um, if they were to do so and the Democratic Party were to adopt them, um, considering the part- partisanship that exists in the Congress now? Um, I mean, even Republicans are adopting the rhetoric of the 99 percent, but um, considering the partisanship that you've um, experienced in the Congress pretty much since you've taken office, what potential do you think um, making these demands would have on affecting change? Thanks. Well, I'm not sure that I'm in a position to give a lot of advice uh, to the Occupy Wall Street world. Uh, I can tell you that when groups have come to me over the last several years and said, what can we do, I've told them that Every day, I, it feels like I go outside of this uh, congressional office building, and there's a Tea Party protest. And if you're upset and frustrated, ultimately you have to get out of your, your living rooms, and you've got to let the world know. Um, and folks are doing that. And as you point out, they don't. There isn't. A, but part of the movement is not to have a coherent set of um, uh, demands. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that morphs. I don't know if, if time passes. Uh, there are a series of points that are adopted by the, the movement. Uh, I hope so, but I don't think it's going to happen because outsiders ask them to do so. I think, it's, I think there's a huge commitment to the, this movement that they've got to work it out themselves and that they don't want any political leader to tell them, tell them how to do it. Uh, and and as, as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the heart of what's important for us to hear right now is the economic frustration of working families across this country with the path that our, our nation has, has been on. Let me give you just a, a small piece of the, of the puzzle. We're spending $120 billion a year in Afghanistan on a nation-building mission that is not going to work because of the illiteracy 
and because of the cultural obstacles and because of the corruption. We need to end that war and we need to bring that $120 billion home. And if you translate that into jobs in America, that's 6 million jobs, even before you count the effects of spending, those families spending the money on the second and third round, if you will. So 6 million jobs. In Oregon, 1% of the nation, that's 60,000 jobs. Well, 60,000 jobs would have a huge impact on the economy of our state. And I would dare say in every state of this union, you'd see a big impact. So we're making choices about what we're doing. And I think the message that we should take at this point from Occupy Wall Street is we need to start rethinking the choices we're making that are eviscerating living wage jobs in this country. And part of that, I would argue, is we need to spend a lot more dollars on education and infrastructure. We have just a minute left. Let's try to get a couple quick questions in for U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley here at the Commonwealth Club. Great. Thanks, Senator, for coming in and sharing your views today. I wanted to follow up on the first question that was, a- that was asked, actually, because I've been in the solar industry for over 10 years, and I remember when I started, the cost of solar was effectively 50 cents a kilowatt hour, and today we're literally on the precipice of being at grid parity in so many places in the U.S. with you know the promise of explosive job growth. And so I think it's commonly understood in our industry that the cost of solar has really been driven by the decreasing uh, pricing of polysilicon, the key raw material in our uh, in our products. And so uh, given that the United States is the leading exporter of polysilicon, and I believe that there's two silicon companies operating in your state, MEMC being one of them, uh, I'm just curious, what kind of uh, feedback did you get from those guys uh, before you know, supporting the petition that was filed last week against uh, Chinese companies um, and you know, pursuant to the point that was brought up about, you know, the idea of increasing solar costs, how is this going to play out, and do you anticipate any retribution for polysilicon imports into China and other areas as a result? Thank you. Well, certainly at this point, what has happened is a case has been filed. Now, that takes a considerable amount of time to process that case, go through the findings, and to have... uh, This is a a case with the World Trade Organization. Yes, And so uh, we're kind of uh, looking into a very hazy crystal ball. But what the filing has done is to help people understand that there's something awry when a country is not allowed to do subsidies for exported products under WTO. And when they're doing massive subsidies to an exported product, there needs to be a discussion about are you breaking the rules because if you are, what you're doing is you're, you're doing so with a huge cost to the United States in terms of, of jobs. We do produce, some folks think, well, it must be because the raw materials are so much uh, cheaper in China. Well, we're producing the materials and shipping them to China for China to then uh, take the additional stages and ship back panels to the United States. So it's not the, the cost of raw materials. And in an unsubsidized world, the price is going to keep coming down substantially because we're getting so much more efficiencies of, of scale and just kind of learning how to produce it more effectively. Plus, the, the very panels that we have uh, have, you know, a panel that of, of a certain size that might have, have produced, uh, uh, let's say, a um, 1,000 uh, watts uh, two years ago. That same panel today might produce 1,500 watts. In other words, the efficiency of the, the technology. So all of that's combining to greatly make it more competitive. 
My only my point on the on the trade side is that in the long term, it's better to have players operating, competing on a level playing field, so one doesn't, in a predatory fashion, wipe out the other, and then the overall prices go up and hurts the industry in the long term. One last quick question and quick answer for Senator Merkley. Is there still a chance to get the Disclose Act passed and signed into law? And also, what other means do we have to deal with the negative effects of the Citizens United decision? There is a possibility of getting the Disclose Act passed, but because of the 60-vote requirement imposed by my colleagues across the aisle and the complete discipline they have shown in supporting a secret foreign unlimited campaign contributions, uh, the odds are considered to be very slim uh, because you don't have a group that says we're going to break with that position and come across. There is discussion of a potential action that the president could take in which contractors, in other words, folks who have federal contracts, could be required to fully disclose their campaign donations as a principle of conflict of interest. Well, most large companies do have contracts with the federal government, and so that is a potential alternative strategy that that could prove very effective and needs to be thoroughly examined. We need to end it there. Our thanks to U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, Democrat from Oregon, for joining us today at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to a full uh, program of this uh, podcast in the iTunes store. Senator Merkley, thank you for coming. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.